is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane's okay, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Let's run! Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. And today we have a special guest returning. Uh, I'm Adam Ezekiel. Thanks for having me again. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. Tonight's episode, today's episode, whenever you're listening to the show, is uh, our third installment in our Legacy of Alien series. And this is our, this has been a way for us to kind of re-engage alien in a way we haven't before and i think what's really inspired this is of course knowing that we have a new film coming out that appears to be really uh inspired by and taking um cues from ridley scott and dan o'bannon's alien and it feels right to reinvestigate this material and to ask ourselves and the audience or our listeners why this is why this film is so amazing why this feels this film is so singular and what makes it so singular and today's episode is we're really going to be concentrating on the characters and everyone knows for me character is key is king i mean i think what makes these films isn't the beast even though the beast is part of it it's the characters it's uh what the people that we can relate to and they make this journey worth it because we can see ourselves in them and we can root for them and they feel like regular people this episode i'm really excited about and I'll just add to that, that this episode was, as as you all know by now, because Adam has been on many times, Adam is a, a recognized expert in the costuming in particular within Alien, uh, as well as the work of John Malo and how that shows up in you know science fiction. Uh, and of course, Christian is kind of our in-house expert on this as well. So this is, a, this is something that I was hoping we would cover the very first time we had Adam on for this legacy series. And then we kept talking about so many other things that we were like, well, let's like save it and we'll have a full episode where we can really go character by character and also costume by costume to a degree to talk about how iconic and legendary those things are as well. So yeah, unless, uh, I, I guess, Christian, you have anything you want to add to that in terms of format for today? Not really. I'm just super excited to talk about one of my my favorite sets of costumes, the the way that they all work so well together to give that Patrick's favorite word, verisimilitude. Sometimes, and this is a good thing sometimes, films can look so painterly that they stop having that, that realism. Alien somehow does both. It is beautiful. Every shot could be framed and put on a wall, and yet we're given that realism. We're given that sense that these are real people, and I truly believe it's that marriage of costume and actor. So I'm excited to talk about it today. Before we really get into the characters, I don't. I feel like we can't kind of move on until we talk about some the first moment we meet them, which is in the cryo the cryo bay or whatever you want to call it, and you know the the glass or the plastic is moving up, and you you see these people for the first time in a very womb like place, and then the next scene is you see them eating together, and just the camera movement, but more than the camera movement, the ease that these people have together. 
there's just something so i mean it's it's a community it's a family of people it's not they're not seven strangers they're not yet like I don't know, someone from, you know, different points of the galaxy kind of waking up like, who are you? These are people who have known each other for a long, long time, and they're on this journey together. And they sell that moment so beautifully. You're just immersed. And there's no question that you believe what you're seeing. You believe what you're hearing. You believe that these people are who they are. It's almost like a documentary, in my opinion. It's a crew. It's worth comparing that scene to similar scenes in Sunshine and Event Horizon. Event Horizon tries to spoof the dialogue where the the black character offers someone coffee by saying, do you want something hot and black inside you? And that's such an unsubtle version of Parker's I'd rather be eating something else. And it just completely lowers the quality of the movie to have the writing like that. Or in Sunshine, how these characters are written to be at each other's throats over petty things instead of giving them room to have that much more realistic simmering sniping kind of quality that say um, Ripley and, and uh, Lambert have, you know, that, that I know is such a telling line delivery, but it was such a subtle line to begin with. So I agree. You get the sense that they've already worked many, many hours together and it isn't always pleasant, but they have to just get through the job. And uh, before we go character by character, it's worth noting that that element was present in O'Bannon and Shusett's original screenplay. For all of the changes that happened, and anybody who's read that screenplay knows it's it's wildly different in many ways from the finished shooting script, that sequence is very much the same. We open with the cockpit, with the close-up, we, then we go into the, you know, the the, the pods that open up, like a, they, I think he calls them refrigeration pods or something. Um, and the crew who, in you know, in uh, the original script are all men with different names that we're not used to wake up and address each other and they kind of make fun of each other. And they say they look like shit and they look like vampires arising from the dead. And then they go into the, you know, mess hall and they eat together and they talk about what they want to do when they get home. So that was really there from the very beginning, this idea of the truckers in space that gets brought up a lot. And I love that even although, and we're going to talk about this today quite a bit, the dialogue changed so drastically throughout the filming process and character arcs even changed while they were shooting. But some things were really present from the very beginning, and this is one of them. What I also think is really important to point out is in terms of the dialogue and how these characters are performed, I feel like the difference is when, when we talk about films that try to emanate alien, that try to kind of create that every man, every woman in space, that feeling. The dialogue feels performative for the audience. It doesn't feel like, whereas with Alien, they're not saying what they're saying for us. They're saying what they're saying for them. Obviously, they don't know that we're there. This is a movie. They're not. It's not made for the actors to know that, yeah, they are, but they know that there's going to be an audience. But it's it's as if they decided, and I don't know exactly, I mean, who knows, really, how they approach this, but they did not approach it in a way that was like, look what we just said, wink, wink, or because you see all the time or experience all the time in films where people are trying to like, you, you're, you're trying to hear like witty dialogue and dialogue that's like relatable and it just falls really flat. And there's a reason why that happens An alien and arguably aliens and alien three that never happens. All of this feels real. Um, but specifically in alien, it is, the most realistic sci-fi environment I have ever experienced in my life as it relates to character. It's almost like they, they don't uh, spoon feed the audience. You know, it's kind of, you uh, un understand it from, from the dialogue. I think that's a, it's a, you know, there's no like, you know, an explanation of, Oh, this is why I don't like that person or something like that. Like an wink, wink explanation to do to the audience, which I really like that that's the way it is. You understand it from the dialogue. As everybody knows, there's there's two words that I overuse. One of them is verisimilitude. The other one is exposition, which is something that I hate in film. Uh, I think there's a place for it, of course, in some things. But to me, one of the great things about Alien is the complete lack of it for the most part. And the fact that we, through the dialogue and the interactions of these characters, learn it for ourselves through looking at the ways in which things are engineered in space, through the ways the costumes are used, through the ways things interact with each other on the screen, we make a lot of our own assumptions and then we see if they're true or not. And uh, the beginning of Alien is, again, completely bereft of that. There's none of that in it, uh, which which I really love. I was thinking in terms of other films that we can compare it to, you know, as well. Christian's brought up a couple. 
Another one is Avatar, right? So Avatar to me is one of my least favorite films I've ever seen in my life for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of which being that it's by James Cameron, who is a personal hero of mine and somebody who I know is capable of not doing what he does in Avatar all the time. We have a similar sequence at the beginning of Avatar where they go into the their avatars for the first time, right? Um, Sigourney Weaver's even in it. And they go into these pods and they wake up. The, the difference in terms of the dialogue and pacing is so different because in Avatar, all they're doing is telling us about what's happening, about the technology, about what to expect. And they do it under the guise of, oh, we have to educate the protagonist of this movie, whose name I can't even remember anymore, about what he's about to go through. But what's really happening is that James Cameron doesn't trust us to be able to like figure it out for ourselves or to glean enough from it. So we have to be told like we're children being, you know, I mean, that's the thing too, is that even children don't get treated like that if they're being taught well, because a good teacher will allow students to make assumptions for themselves and to test those theories out instead of just you know barfing things at us and alien doesn't do that at all alien for all of the films that i can think of probably has the least that that could have otherwise been excused for having exposition has probably the least exposition of any film i can think of and that i think is part of its legacy uh in the original screenplay the characters are all naked in the beginning, but there's one of the first costuming decisions we get to see in the film is that they are no longer naked. They are dressed in this sort of, you know, celestial, pure white undergarments, which are interesting as well. Um, so we can come back to that as we talk about the characters, but I guess, you know, we can kind of start from the beginning. Do you want to start maybe with Dallas and go from there? And I, so if, if you decide to go, you know, character by character and with the costume also, can I, this is the time to, uh, inject a little John Molo. Uh, okay, so John Molo was, you know, as you know, the costume designer on this film, but he his original, his, his beginning expertise were as a military fashion expert. It actually was his older brother and father. His father was a collector. His older brother was the real um, academic about um, military history, focusing on fashion. So John Molo himself actually started in the film is he started before that as as a, a author and illustrator on military fashion oriented books and in the film industry he started about 10 years before this is pre Star Wars and so he was the um like authenticity advisor for period pieces so not the costume designer, but the person advising them on what's the more accurate, you know, Napoleonic, at, at the beginning of the Napoleonic era, what they would wear, what they would use, how to make things look authentic. So for over a decade, he was focused around making things look authentic in films. And then in, I think it was 75 or 76, a person named George Lucas approaches him and like, hey, would you want to you know, help me be costume designer on this, on this little film of mine? So this was his first proper costume design gig, basically. And he ends up winning an Oscar for it. And right after that goes into Alien. So that background of being so focused around making sure things look authentic and now he has kind of free range to do whatever he wants. He doesn't, it doesn't have to, you know, to copy an exact period of time. I think that that's a big factor in why, you know, the characters' costumes and by that, why the, the characters look so authentic, look so, you know, believable, why it looks like, you know, they're actually working, living and wearing, this is like, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's believable. You don't add, you know, so many times I see, you know, films where I, I, I think to myself, oh, this, this doesn't look, it looks too new, it's too press, or it's too, it doesn't look authentic, I guess. So I'm guessing that, you know, discovering that background on John Molo is like an explanation of why this looks so authentic. So what we're presented with in this crew is clearly they've been given a uniform by the company. And all of them, in one way or another, have subtly altered their uniform or embellished their uniform with one very notable exception, which on, on reviewing, you see Ash hasn't done anything to his uniform. It's exactly as it was given to him because he's the robot. And so Dallas, who we're going to start with, um, Adam, you can talk to this more than I can, but his embellishment actually speaks more, I think, to John Molo's history, right? With the belt buckle. Oh, with that, with Dallas specifically? Uh, yeah. Dallas's belt buckle turns out to be a 
uh, Royal Welsh military buckle. Um, that's pretty rare. It's like this was a specific version that was only issued and in use in like from 1965 to like 1972, something like that. Managed to figure figure that out, but uh, yeah, I mean, most of the like the influences for for Dallas and Cambridge are almost identical. Are kind of British, based on British like British flight jackets, like they're like the, the you know like the flight crew, the captain, first officer. Uh, so like the jackets that they wear, uh, they're British, basically pilots' jackets that are still actually being the, that same pattern that was used in the film it was still in use today to this day. I feel like what's also informing these costumes and how the costumes inform the characters is also the way the film was shot, which was, of course, on film. I think as we get to today, you can have really great costumes, really um, well-made costumes, but they all look brand new because they're being shot on shiny digital 4K, 8K film. And that really affects the lived-in quality of them. And I've seen that over and over where you have all of this great work put into costuming and then the digital cinematography just kind of wipes that clean. Whereas with Alien, it's not only film, but it's also a dark interior. Even in the more well-lit areas, it's still, it has shadow, it has light. Those costumes really feel lived in. They really feel like these people have owned this these their clothes for a few years and it's just, they're very comfortable in them. And that's, something I loved so much about Alien, and it's timeless. You can watch Alien. It doesn't feel like the 70s to me. There's a very 70s aesthetic in terms of how they shoot the film that was very popular at that time, that kind of almost verite documentary documentary style. Um, that was very prevalent in Alien that really feeds into and plays well off of the characters. But again, none of those, I think even in brighter light, none of those costumes feel brand new and that is so important for the believability it also helps us believe the characters more when paying that much attention to them they're just another part of this character's life and i love it i mean as beautiful and as amazing as these costumes are i think in the right hands attention wouldn't be drawn to it it's just going to add to the larger the larger story that's being told exactly like if it's done well it's you don't notice it it just blends in it blends in like a good special effect. Also, you you don't notice that it was a special effect if it looks believable. What I wanted I wanted to say about it, um, the so this was something that that believability and and looking lived in was a, was a, a factor that they were consciously thinking about. I know that they weathered, for example, uh, Parker's and and Brent's uniforms more than. Dallas or like the prime example is Ash, which is, you know, almost perfect. Even from the, from the first scene, from the first scene where the, the rest of the crew are, you know, still in their t-shirts, half, half dressed, Lambert is with, you know, drying her hair with a towel, Ash is perfectly dressed, perfectly buttoned up. Everything is, it's kind of also a hint of the deeper, you know, identity of that character. It's kind of a hint to the audience, but they definitely use, the, the costumes and the way the characters wear the, the costumes to give us hints about these characters. Going back to Park and Brad, they're the most, you know, weathered, uh, even sandpapered, uh, dirty, you know, kind of of uh, of costumes. Uh, another factor that was really interesting to me is that they used linen for all the shirts, because linen wrinkles easier. It looks lived in and and worn much easier than if it was cotton, for example. So, Jamie, you talk about the timelessness of the look. Uh, Dallas's hair was always the the tough one for me to swallow through the 80s and 90s. And then a funny thing happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we got all of these bands growing their hair out and having beards. Suddenly, the 1979 film became timeless because in my lifetime, I had seen that fad come and go. But let's talk about just for a second... This is how the, the captain of the ship presents himself. He's kind of straggly and un, unshaven, whereas you have Kane, who's clean cut and has a much smarter looking haircut, and how much that subtly tells us about their personalities. Dallas is all about, let's just let things go. Let's, you know, ah, the science officer wants to take the lead. That's cool. I'll, I'll defer to him. Whereas Kane is like, let's do this. Let's keep going. We have to go on. And I feel like 
And similarly, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but I believe that Kane buttons up and tucks in his shirt, whereas Dallas wears his unbuttoned and untucked. I, I think I think you're correct. I think that kind of uh, is intended to kind of uh, like he's like uh, the experienced captain that has been there a long time. He's kind of on his last leg, so he's you know a little looser. He doesn't care as much as he he wanted. Uh, in the beginning, you know, very similar to kind of parallel to military. So like in a military unit, if you have the, you know, the new commander coming in, so everything has to be, you know, perfect and lined and and tucked and ironed. And after two and a half years of that, then he has his beard grown out. He's not, doesn't really care about his shirt anymore. He's like, he's on his way out already to his next position. So I think that's also another factor that you thought about for this one, that this is a a semi-military set of, of uniforms. So this is not, you know, proper military, but it's a semi, they have, you know, the, the, the structure of the captain and first officers, they have a ranking structure, but it's not, you know, proper military. So th- there is a distinction there. Like, as, for example, as a, you know, the crew of a merchant ship, for example, it's kind of like where they were going with this. So, the, so it was looser than the than a military setting. That's why I think we have, you know, Lambert's cowboy boots, uh, Brett's Hawaiian shirt, you know, Ripley's wearing a jumpsuit, Parker has a, a leather jacket, so it's a little looser. Each character has his own kind of distinct, you know, detail. It's also worth noting Tom Skerritt was in the Air Force, too, so he had some experience wearing military clothes, one would imagine. And I think you're bringing up a great point about what the costumes telegraph to the audience, because there's another aspect to Dallas being so casual, I think, which is that he might not be paying as close attention to what's going on as he would have been years earlier, right? I mean, factoring into that, they're also at the end of this entire, pro- like, they're on the way home. So, like, they really, they're they're, they're basically checked out at this point. And it's in that the context. Last leg, yeah. Exactly. The last leg of the journey. So in that context, you have this incipient threat happening with the company, with Special Order 937, with the creature and all these things happening. And Dallas, because he's not, I mean, he's not even like paying enough attention to make sure that his shirt is buttoned properly because he just doesn't really need to anymore. Right. And that's the guy who's in charge of the entire mission. And it also creates this interesting power dynamic because you do have Kane, who as the you know executive officer, the first officer, is clearly more committed to this idea of like being out there in space and doing great things than, than the leader of the mission is. But you also have Ripley, who to me is like the great antithesis to Dallas in a lot of ways, because she, in addition to being very much buttoned up and you know dressed with a, a lot of attention to the way that she's presenting herself, is at the beginning of her journey and, you know, terms of her career, but also in terms of like, you know, what she wants to do with her life. So she still is very much by the book. Everything is, every T is, you know, crossed and every I is dotted. And what's interesting is that they're paired up a lot. You know, like a lot of people assume there was some kind of a romantic thing going on there. People like to write about that a lot. I, you know, who knows? There um, were hints of it in the first round. But exactly. The, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and, and then they're not in the final film and even in the extended version of it, but people still kind of read that in there quite a bit. Regardless, it's interesting that these two characters, to me, are actually kind of the most dissimilar to each other, Ash being, of course, excluded from that. And uh, and that's really reflected, I think, in the way that they dress. There's a casualness to Dallas that is in some ways comforting as a viewer, like watching a space odyssey journey. Like It's sort of nice to see that the guy in charge of the mission is very comfortable but it's all it's also a doomed mission and somebody maybe was too comfortable who was in charge of it to notice what was really going on it's interesting with ripley's costume as well um with her jumper it almost feels like a corset like if you look at the back it's kind of bound and tied a little bit it's got that like pole which speaks to who she is which she's kind of bound by procedure um she's younger she's up and coming she's not the second officer but you know when kane is off the ship she's in command she's like third in line i suppose after after dallas very very interesting how they play that how they play subtly into that and it's not over the top again it's not expositional it's not like winking it's nothing comes off in her dialogue but her costume speaks to her so loudly and it's it's and again it just speaks to who she is what's interesting about dallas well and i I think about like dallas and his casualness and when the moment they woke they 
wake up or the moments after and then they're checking you know after they've eaten they're they're getting plugged in they're seeing what's going on they think they're close to earth they're not really sure which i love because that would be a little bit more you know there are windows but there aren't there it's not like a spaceship where like oh look there's a planet that's less realistic to see something like that in order for them to know where they are they have to check and they assume they're in earth's orbit or close to it and i don't know how many of you have worked in the retail environment or customer facing environments when you were younger I have, but I, and I, what I remember is there were times when there was this momentum, say you're going to close or things are happening or say you're going to close your store or whatever's going on. And then there's a customer that comes in and there's this large sigh from everyone. Like, oh my God, now what? And that's kind of what the crew of the Nostromo is doing. They're thinking they're home. And then the boss is like, nope, sorry, something different now. And they're like, now where we are. And you just hear that sigh from all of them. And they're just like, what the fuck is going on? And they're just really disappointed. And that really speaks loudly to what it's like to be a rank and file, probably a little bit lower than blue collar worker to be at the, the beck and call of the man or, or the person in charge or the people in charge. And I really, really liked that. I really got the sense of unity from them, even though they're all very different and Parker's a hothead and Brett's a yes man. Uh, right. You know, but they're still really unified as a group of people and to they speak so loudly to what it's like to work for a large corporation and you do what they say or you're that's it exactly and that's kind of like that that period of time was like when the crew is kind of in their mentally most vulnerable point which is the perfect segue into throwing in an additional extra much larger much more sinister serious danger Even if there hadn't actually been a threat on this planet, just by being diverted this far, isn't it like 10 months till Earth or something? Like everyone's planned. They've literally lost a year by being diverted to do this thing. And so there's that sense of we had no say in this. And of course, Ash is there to tell you, well, by company order, blah, 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 we have to investigate if there's a chance of, of life or whatever. We have to do, you know, attempt to rescue. I love what you're saying about Ripley being all laced up. And Adam can absolutely speak to what she was wearing for that. But there's a theory amongst fandom that, um, because Ripley's not only wearing the jumpsuit, the, the compression jumpsuit on top, but beneath that, she has the rest of the uniform that everyone else is wearing on top. So she's wearing like three shirts, which is kind of crazy. And at the end, when she has really identified how much the company is at fault, the company is the enemy, she takes off all of these layers that all have Whaley Nutani branding on them. It's undone a little bit by the fact that her underwear is actually stamped with the William Yutani logo and she puts on a bathrobe. It is? Has, oh yeah, all the underwear was. There's a little, the a little red stamp. You can't see it in the film, okay. but in the behind the scenes stuff. Maybe I'm not right about the, the her, her, her panties. They may not be stamped, but there's not enough room on the cloth or anything. But I, I won't be surprised if it is stamped. <laughs> and then she puts on the bathrobe and it, and it still has the William Yutani logo. Yeah, yeah. But metaphorically, I still feel like the ending of the movie, she she is taking off that persona as the very laced up by the book company person, because she's proven throughout the course of the film that when it comes down to it, she won't follow their orders. Much to the chagrin of the entire crew, too. Like when she said certain things, you can hear this, hear it, and see it. This eye roll, like Ripley, like just everyone's like, "We want to get home. What are you? What are you doing?" And she's the one in there, like, "No, like this is this is the way things go." And I, I love that, that she stands out as a character. She's kind of one of them, but not one of them as well. Even though there is unity there and there is uh, the sense of a, of a family and a crew, she's also, you can tell, and I don't know that she's the newest person in this crew. I mean, aside from Ash, at least the humans. Right. I mean, she's third in command. Going back 
a, a little bit about, you know, we talked about uh, Dallas, so but with Kane, since he's like second in command, then that also explains why he would be, you know, he needs to prove himself, he wants to become captain, assembly of, you know, uh, of a ship. So that's why kind of he, you know, pushes on, we have to go on, we have to investigate, he's the one who volunteers, you know, volunteers first to go out on that expedition, uh, you know, and that actually works against him at the end but he he wasn't pushed by anyone to go he volunteers he wants to go he wants to go down that shoot uh, you know and he's curious about the eggs for example that's another so every he his drive to you know to progress um, uh, you know through the ranks i guess is his demise the interesting aspect of his costume that, that relates to that is where everyone else is wearing these high top sneakers. He's wearing uh, combat boots. So he's boots on the ground. He wants to go have some, some sort of an adventure. There's, there's a desire for more action, more, more adventure in his life. Just, I think through that little subtle detail of having these black combat boots on instead. Yeah. Those black boots. Yeah. Yeah. And actually his, his and Dallas's costumes are virtually identical, except for he has a few more. Dallas has more of those compression panels on the front, on the left and right side of his uh, jacket, which are actually taken from the same type of jumpsuit that Ripley wears. You just cut pieces of it and just glued it on to Dallas's jacket. And, you know, obviously Dallas has gold wings because he's the, he's the captain on his jacket and on his shirt. And Kane has silver. And all the rest of the crew have uh, these blue wings or these uh, these black kind of little whaling tiny wings. We haven't really spoke on yet. And, and I mean, I know we talked about her boots, but Lambert, and I, I feel like in terms of her style, she's also very different. Her clothes seem a little like she's wearing like that kind of tank top, but it's not. It's got really short sleeves. Her clothes are a little bit tighter. She's a, which. She's also, I think, somewhat tightly wound, but in a different way than Ripley is. She, you can sense her fear, her skepticism, right away. Um, whereas Kane is the explorer, and Dalph's like, okay, whatever. Ash is interested. Parker and Brett are also kind of like, yeah, we don't want to do this, and they make that known. But Lambert is just from the from the beginning. You just you can see it in her face, and you know, hats off to. Veronica Cartwright for an incredible performance. One of the best performances of fear I've ever seen in a film. I mean, I, I think her performance, like that scene in Alien 3 when the beast comes right up next to Ripley and her absolute fear of that creature, I, that is fear. That is the kind of fear that you see. And Veronica Cartwright's performance as Lambert is iconic. But there's so much about her costuming and her the way the character is written that influences how she maneuvers herself around the crew. And she almost seems a little bit distrustful of the crew to some degree. And then, and I know this was cut from the, the theatrical, but there's a scene where when she gets back in the ship and she goes down to the, the med bay, she slaps Ripley. Um, she's like furious, but that fury comes more from her abject terror. Uh, and her gut feeling like this is going bad. She has not. She does not have a good feeling about this. So I, I, I can never uh, speak enough about Lambert. And uh, there's one character in another, you know, in a, another Alien film that re reminds me of Lambert. A wonderful performance, which is Ferris in Covenant, which is kind of similar. It really recalls the authentic fear of Lambert. Uh, and it, Lambert is just a really great character. And I don't think she's talked about enough. Just to that end, I think part of why Lambert's arc works so well is because in all contexts, she's like the most recognizable real person in the situation in terms of how she's reacting to things. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't disagree that she seems distrustful throughout the film, but I, I do push back a little bit in that there's a level of casualness that she has that, for example, Ripley doesn't have. Right. So and, and that that and I'm not just comparing them because of the two women but because I think that they have interesting personalities vis-a-vis -vis the other crew members. So Ripley really only interacts with Parker in any meaningful way among the crew in terms of what we see on screen in the, in the you know theatrical release of the film um, in Dallas to a degree too. But in terms of like substantive dialogue, she really talks to, to Parker for the most part and everybody else is just sort of uh, around the periphery of her experience. 
physically that's also the case because of the way that Ripley is shot exclusively for most of the movie is she's on the other side of the room. She's in front of people. She's behind people. She and Ash really are almost always separate from the main group. But Lambert is typically not. Lambert from the very beginning of the movie is kind of intermingled with them, right? She is in some ways uh, supportive of the type of humor and the crudeness. She like kind of recognizes that it's crass, but she's not uncomfortable because she's been around these people and she knows them. Uh, and that, I think part of what I love about Lambert and Veronica Cartwright so much is that that allows us to go on an emotional journey with her character in a very direct way throughout the rest of the movie, because we kind of identify with her. Like we, we've all been in that role before where we're comfortable with people. We're a little bit insecure and a little nervous about what we're doing, but like we kind of, kind of go along with it. You know, everybody knows what that feels like. And I think, uh, I think Veronica Cartwright does a really marvelous job of, um, of pulling it off. It's also worth remembering that she was originally considered for Ripley and she auditioned for Ripley and thought she had the role. Uh, and it's so crazy to think how different a film it would have been. Veronica Cartwright, of course, is an actress. She was performing a role. So it's not like she's always this scream queen. She's really good at it, but she's, you know, it, I mean, I'm sure she would have done an amazing job as Ripley, but it would have been very different. Instead of having Sigourney Weaver, who had no Hollywood experience at all at that point, was fresh out of the Yale Drama School, had done a few things on Broadway, and was just this outsider from the very beginning. And, um, you know, that like level of outsiderness, I think, really contributed to Ripley's journey, which was one kind of from outside to in, right? She becomes the the lead protagonist very late into this story and not because she wants to be in a very reluctant way. Lambert's journey in some ways is sort of inside to out where she starts in a very comfortable place. And then because of the extreme situation she finds herself in sort of becomes moved to the periphery as this terrified person who is very reactive and, and kind of almost unable to do anything in the face of this enormous terror. And then she does, of course, die in the midst of doing something heroic, which is to try to get everybody off the ship. And that, I think, also in terms of the arcs of these characters works really well because she does get, she doesn't die a coward. She dies somebody doing something valiant, but that cowardice is played with quite a bit because we wonder if she's going to be able to in the end. And that is reflected so much in the way that she performs that role. It doesn't come off to me as cowardice. So I'm not, not specifically saying that you're saying that, but I kind of see what you're saying to me. It's almost the distrust I, I'm, I'm mentioning is a distrust for what the company is having them do. She's completely distrustful of the entire situation. She just, she knows, she knows, you know, from the beginning, from that moment when they discover that beacon, the camera pans over to her and you can just see it. Like, what are we doing? What are they having us do? As if she knows their, their bait, as if she knows that they are expendable. The company wants them to bring this thing on the ship, no matter what. And I love that. I love that about her. And I, I think you're so right, Patrick, in terms of her ease within the crew. She is like in listening, hearing what Parker said, which was crass and not being offended, but laughing at it, you know, I mean, because you're, you hang out with people long enough and it's different where you go into a work environment, which all of you I know are familiar with where you, you're surrounded with people, but you go home and you have your family and you have your life. There's a level of professionalism that that is commanded of you in those situations. But these people are, you know, sleeping on the same ship. They're not just, you know working in some factory, they just have them. So they can probably be a little bit more crass. They can be themselves because who the fuck is going to do anything about it? Real, Right. You know, so, and it just kind of makes people feel more at ease, but there's this uneasiness about Lambert. There's an uneasiness about how she navigates that space after they find out sort of what's going on. And then someone says, how long to earth? And, and I think Ripley says six months. And she goes, oh God. And almost as if she knows they're not going to make it out. It is a subtle and beautiful performance by Veronica Cartwright, who, if no one knows, which I'm sure a lot of you who are listening do, she most famously played the little girl in, kind of like the main little girl in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So she was kind of paving that way for her like career in horror. She most famously went on to The X-Files, which also dealt with another kind of aliens later on. She played uh, Fox Mulder's half-brother's mother. She continued to, after Alien, take on really dynamic roles and live in those roles in ways very few people can. An interesting fact that I, that I loved about, about the film is that they made her, you know, the she, she's, she, you know, she didn't trust. She was, you know, conveyed like the, the you know, like the fears and concerns of, of the audience. And yet 
they gave her the part of insisting on letting Cain, letting the parasite into the ship, which is very poetic if you really think about it, you know? Yeah, and uh, another thing about uh, Ripley is that, you know, at the time, like uh, Patrick said, she wasn't known, so the audience didn't, and she was in the background for almost like half of, of, of the, the first half of the film, no one expected her to be the, the, like the protagonist, the last survivor. This was kind of a surprise. Everyone expected, you know, Tom Skerritt or John Hurt to be like the main, you know, lead character of the film. So it was, at the time, it was surprising. No one knew her. We've mentioned that Lambert has these cowboy boots as sort of her signature costume piece. She wears a different shirt than everyone else, and she wears a, a vest over it. So there's other aspects, but they're not just cowboy boots. They have these gigantic heels. So Veronica Cartwright and Ian Holm are actually the same height, but these heels put her up uh, above him, making him the shortest person in the crew. And I have no idea if that was on purpose, if that was an intentional thing. And taking away the casting aspect of it, is this Lambert trying to make herself a bigger person on board the ship? I don't know. I'm always trying to figure out why would the character have chosen this footwear? Who should we talk about next? Should we talk about Parker? Yes, I was just thinking that. Yeah, let's yeah, go to the really... engineering deck for a little bit. Well, Parker uh, is similar to Dallas. He doesn't wear his, he doesn't button up his clothes. You know, he's he's just, and again, engineering, they really do what they want to do. I mean, they're, they're you know, two peas in a pod and it's their territory. And you, it's made very clear who's kind of the captain of that part of the ship. You know, and I, I just, I love Parker and Parker, I think is also very iconic in his own way. And, and set the stage for characters like Apone, set the stage for characters like Dylan, who are direct callbacks to who Parker was and who Parker is. Yeah. So uh, regarding his costume, so he's, he's wearing a, an American leather aviator jacket. The rest of his, you know, like the shirts and pants are the st standard ivory color. And he wears as a belt, as I mentioned before, it's an, it's an F it's a type of an African rope. Several colors in it and just wrapped around his waist. This is a really interesting. I never was really able to kind of pinpoint exactly what type of, of robe it was, but that's what it was. Kind of a you know, he has that that bandana of uh, some parts of the film. It's very uh, is you know, as we already mentioned, is his uniform is the most weathered from right from the beginning. I think that Parker's blue headband and Vasquez's red headband are definitely. It's a callback. Vasquez having that iconic headband has to be in part because Parker also rocked this very interesting headband. I think it has a different color at the end or something. I, I, in some photos, it looks like it isn't just one color. It's blue on one side, it's red on the other side. So if he flips it around, it kind of looks like blue and red. The official company-issued belt buckle is this very sort of sci-fi looking thing that has a couple of train windows and... The, the same insignia pin that they usually have on either their lapel or whatnot. And and we've talked more about the people that don't wear that, but a couple of people such as Kane and Ash do wear that belt buckle. And so the assumption I would have is that everyone is issued that and both Parker and Dallas are like, nah, that's not for me. And other people wear their clothes so untucked that you can't see if they have any belt on at all. But I love that you have to assume that Ash is taking notes mentally on everyone's violations of the uniform code <laughs> and they're all going to have their pay docked at the end because of it yeah that's a, it's an interesting uh i mean kind of a, what i kind of chose for myself for you know for my replicating the these costumes that you know everything was company issued and they have like a locker somewhere over there with all of these you know these uniforms you know like a uh, like a vacuum sealed bag or something like that that you know they but, but anyone who has, like, you know, uh, uh, either served in the military or like a similar type of organization knows that, you know, they're very different versions depending on the, you know, the, the year that you joined that organization. They have the different types. So that's kind of you end up with, you know, with a crew that looks like it was all issued by the same company, but there are many different versions, different types, different, you know, for colder climate, warmer climate. They have a jumpsuit. They have a, the jacket so it's kind of a, a, a mishmash but still all gels together very nicely keeping in mind this is also at the end of months and months and months and months of sitting in the same building 
you know, together flying through space. So like they really, at, at this point that we're meeting these characters, like they probably lost a lot of things. They probably can't find stuff. I, I'm assuming that, you know, they've been sweating through these clothes so many times that they're not even really putting the effort into making them look good anymore, which I love. And, and it's something that so few films today, like Jamie was saying earlier, like so few films do that today. There's a very artificial sense of weathering in a lot of costumes today, but the ones in Alien, feel like they were like actual articles of clothing that had been worn for this multi you know year assignment which is amazing i want to make sure we talk a little bit about yafat koto um which we uh, of course we've covered parker numerous times and we did a couple of shows dedicated to yafat when he passed a couple of years ago but there's something important that we haven't really talked about much today which is dialogue and how that influences the ways that these characters come out and i think uh yafat koto is hugely responsible in, in part for the way the final dialogue of Alien feels so spontaneous. So Yafet was a really gifted improviser. His background was in improvisation. And he, of course, was kind of the big star when this was being cast because he was right off as James Bond's success and Live and Let Die. So he was like, he came into this project with more power than a lot of other people in the cast did. Power, you know, not only with Fox executives, but also with Ridley Scott, who this was his first real Hollywood film. He had only done one thing before this, of course. So so Ridley was, which is funny because you look at his personality now and it seems like how could anybody ever have used him as a pushover? But he kind of got pushed around by Yafet quite a lot during the filming of this. One would imagine physically as well as emotionally because Yafet would show up with all these ideas every day and he would corner Ridley and Ridley would have, you know, his assistants tell him where Yafet was on set so that he would be specifically not where Yafet was because he just didn't want to hear more of Yafet's ideas. Ideas. Famously, on the day that Parker was supposed to die, uh, you know, he told really that his character wasn't going to die anymore, and it had to become this whole big thing. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because you see the dialogue morph and shift so much throughout the filming process. As we talked about already, there was the original abandoned script with Shusett, and then Guyler and Hill got their hands on it and changed things hugely from that, which is amazing. And then you have people like Alan Ladd coming in, you have other people adding their own things to it. And finally, when it shows up and it's in the actor's hands, Ridley Scott himself is writing all over the script. If any of you have Ian Nathan's indispensable Alien Vault book, which you, I'm assuming you do at this point, if you don't, you need to get it. He has, you know, photos of Ridley's shooting script in there, and he has Ridley's handwriting all over it, writing in things that actors were inserting or that he was having people switch around. For example, there's a great moment where you see Brett was supposed to just say, yeah, and instead of that, he crossed it out and put it right next to it. Because one would assume that Harry Dean Stanton was, that was becoming kind of a joke on set, and they kind of decided to roll with it. And what I love is that there's the spontaneity to the dialogue throughout the whole film. And those sequences that we've talked about a couple of times when they were, you know, gathered in the mess hall in the galley and they're sitting around talking, it's almost indecipherable dialogue sometimes. I mean, I, I, I almost want to watch it with subtitles to see what they do because people are just saying things under their breath. They're cutting each other off. And that's something that's really hard to do when you're writing a screenplay because, you know, unless you allow for improvisation on the actual day of the shoot, you know, you have to insert it with slashes and all these reference marks and things. And it's just a whole pain in the ass. But you have people like Yafet Koto and they're saying, let's be free with it. Let's try stuff out. Let's like be a little bit off color with what we say and see if see what they let us get away with. And the result of that is this really fluid dialogue that just makes the whole thing feel so believable. And that to me, we're talking about the legacy of Alien is one of the great legacies of it because it could have gone in a very different direction. Star Wars, for all of you know its marvelous qualities, is not like that. Star Wars is very much... You know, it's declamatory, it's archetypes interacting with each other. And O'Bannon's original script screenplay is kind of a little bit more like that than the finished film was. It's a little bit more kind of 70s science fiction archetypes clashing with each other, you know? And what's so great is you see that devolve so much as the film goes on and end up in this place where it really feels, as Jamie beautifully said, almost like a documentary. And that, I think, is so key to what it gets right and what has been, been so hard for other films to replicate since. One of many aspects that I love about Yafet Koto's performance and the character of Parker is it's largely who Yafet Koto is in person. He's a questioner. He's an idealist and he doesn't just take commands. He wants to know. And he, that's from the beginning. And I love that, that he is a, a bit of an usurper. He's, he's, he's a, a change maker. He wants to know, like, I'm not just here to do your bidding. I, I'm also a human in this space and I have rights and I have wants, and you're going to listen to me. And, he, you know, we see him battle Ripley kind of to the end, a, a bit of a war of words and personality. And he's a big personality. And most famously, as, you know, we've talked up on this show, 
Ridley Scott kind of persuaded Yafet Kota to goad Sigourney Weaver off camera to really create this tension. And that tension is really, really there. And I think as I think about his costume in the bandana, there's a bit of a subversion to his costume as well, where he's like, this is how I'm dressing. I don't give a fuck. And that's also who he is. But he's also not a grunt either. It's easy to make someone like Parker, or it would have been easy to write someone like Parker to be a grunt or like kind of stereotypical African-American guy, loudmouth, but he's not those things. Um, he's not a loudmouth. He is a questioner. He is someone who has his own thoughts, his own ideas. And even before they take off from LV-426, they're wanting to know information. How long is it going to take? And Brett goes, I don't know, about 15 hours. And then Parker goes, 25, 25 hours or whatever that specific dialogue is. And it's Parker calling the shots in those moments. Like, this is how it is. This is how long it's going to take. And I'm the engineer or whatever. And you're going to listen to me. And I, I just love that. And in terms of the legacy of Alien, we see versions of Parker all over the place. They become more stereotypical. They become more stereotypical black characters where the dialogue is and even the affect of how things are spoken is kind of dumbed down a little bit. But Parker is a really intelligent, well-spoken, hot-headed guy. And I love it. I love it. And it's, his costume speaks to that so much. But you also see some vulnerability in him too. That moment when he slams down the gun and he's like, this is all I found. No blood, no nothing. And you see it in his eyes. He's spooked. He's haunted. And for an actor to, to move through those expressions and those feelings so subtly, to see this really powerful man looked terrified, that is the work of a genius actor. And largely, the character of Dylan, played by Charles S. Dutton, is definitely a homage to Parker. And they do it beautifully because Dylan also is as intelligent and as well-spoken and about himself as Parker is, but they're also vastly different people. Yeah, I think that Brent, an interesting thing about it is, you know, his character is kind of on screen for such a, a short period of time the film and yet it's is so iconic and popular like probably the after dallas's or ripley's uh, people contact me about costumes that's the most popular the hats which is also like a super iconic piece of costuming from that an interesting fun fact about the hats is that they were originally intended to be used for dallas and kane's characters there were two the uh, the oak leaves, the scrambled eggs patch on, on the brim, that's like a sign of a captain of the ship in the Navy. But I think that they got it there. It, it, they put it on on uh, on Tom and John Hurt, and it kind of looked, I can Im imagine it, and I can imagine it not, not looking right, too, too toyish or something like that, and they decided to give it to, uh, to Brent, which works perfectly. That is a great explanation for the the scrambled eggs though of why is this the, the lowliest guy on the ship has a symbol on his hat that would imply this higher rank there also at one point there was a, a a version of the hat kicking around online with photos where it looked like there were threads around the patch from um from the shirt that it had been cut from so a lot of for a while fan replicas were replicating this sort of frayed fabric look around the edge as though brett had cut the patch off his uniform and stuck it on the hat. So he would still be wearing it, even though he had his Hawaiian shirt on. And in the end, that isn't true, but boy, it was fun while it lasted. I loved that idea of him. You know, I want to, I want to keep the, the uniform code, but in my own way, because he really wanted to wear his Hawaiian shirt. You're saying I did not know that. You know, well, the, can you give us an explanation for why, like how it was disproven that that was what was going on? Well, better photos uh, came to light of the accurate hat. That's that's one thing we have to say. There are so many erroneous versions of that hat that keep showing up in um, reputable auctions. Um, and selling for a lot when it's yeah. clear that this is absolutely not like, yeah. I, I mean, at least to me, and like I, I can tell from, you know, I, I can say almost 99.9% accuracy. Uh, that this patch was not is not a production patch, and still it 
sells for insane. The shape of the hat, the fact that it has a green underside. There's all these details that you can see them in the film. And so I don't understand why certain prop sales places don't take the time to research these things. But that's just, that's my little rant there for a second. Regardless, the hat is perfect for Brett. It says something about him. I'm not quite sure what. His shirt matches the fact that in the background of his section of engineering, he has model ships and he has um, a fake bird. So there's this sense of him sort of uh, dreaming of, a, of a, an island lifestyle that maybe he would eventually retire to. And so the shirt matches that. Brett's an interesting character because he is unlike anybody else. He, is this, he's a, he seems like this follower. He's, he's an echo. He's Parker's echo. Um, and he's a funny guy. He's, I feel like, n- unintentional comic relief, which I think the film needs. But there's always that person. He's almost the, before um, Hudson, he's the Hudson. He's the the kind of the wisecracking guy. Um, but he definitely is a follower. There, there's, Brett is, I don't get a sense of who Brett is. He's the only character who I don't really get a sense of his personality, except for, again, him echoing Parker quite a bit and you know his what he's wearing is definitely speaks to who he is in terms of a world outside of the the life that they're living at the moment but yeah he's he's someone that's always very very intriguing to me and then that moment when he's sent to go after Jonesy you can see how scared he is and she's like go on ahead and go and he's like okay you know it doesn't say okay but he apprehensively goes out by himself to find Jones and uh, it's just a great moment, that whole sequence, you know, which, again, is an iconic sequence of Brett looking for Jones. And then, you know, the here, kitty, kitty. And then, it, you know, his he loses his life. Um, but yeah, he's just a, a very odd character in, in the group. But it works because no, per, no, no two people are alike. Everyone has their own has their own shtick, has their own thing. And I love it. I love that he's a bit of a wild card in there. And it's he's someone that I can't quite figure out. And that's okay, because I don't need to figure out anyone. And we don't need a film where we know everything about everyone and everyone's an open book. Brett th- keeps things close to his chest. I don't think we truly know him in the way that we know Dallas, in the way that we know Ripley, even in the way that we know Ash, who we really haven't discussed yet, who keeps everything close to himself, because he's there for other reasons. I think I think that Brett is every uncle you've ever had who has an I'd rather be fishing sign in front of his mailbox. Like I think that's just who he, he he's his dream was never to be on a towing around an oil refinery. Like his his dream was probably to just like Christian said, retire and listen to Jimmy Buffett somewhere, which is a valid dream to have. And it's a great dream to have. He probably wish he'd been on, on a ship, which is why he wears clothes that make it look like he's, you know, uh, you know, island hopping. But I think that uh, what what I love about Brett, I love many things about Brett. One of them is that he forms such a beautiful counterweight to Parker. I think without Brett, Parker could easily come across as maybe too domineering or too loud or too brash. I think that Brett, his respect for Brett and the way that he actually treats Brett really well, even though Brett is not only his subordinate, but a completely antithetical personality to him, shows that like Parker really is you know, a good person. He does see the humane in people. So even from the very beginning of the film, when we don't necessarily know that about Parker yet, we can see it in the way that he kind of treats Brett, who would be kind of an easy person to pick on because he's little and quiet and meek and just kind of goes along with the crowd. I love that. I think that they just form such a beautiful partnership. But also, you know, Brett is a really highly skilled person, which is something else that we get to see. So even though he's casual and doesn't really seem to be particularly passionate about it, like he's the reason they're able to get back off LV426. Like he he's an indispensable part of that team. And the team knows that. And so they they kind of treat him well, even though he'd be an easy person to kind of single out in other eyes. I think also just in terms of the the costuming, to me, like the two icon I'm curious also, Adam, because you actually, of course, you know, sell these things. What kind of requests you get from people? To me, the two iconic things, other than maybe Ripley's jumpsuit, would be, you know, Dallas's jacket. And the hat that Brett wears to me, like those are the two things that when you see people cosplaying, they always really emphasize those articles of clothing. They're the two things I always wish I'd had when I was a kid. They're like, there's something really iconic about those two particular articles of clothing. And I think part of why Brett's hat is so iconic, in addition to just being a cool design, is because he takes it off to get the water on his head when he's, you know, pursuing what he thinks is this tiny little cat who's gone missing. 
I think that moment is a really beautiful moment of reverie. And for all of us, it's kind of the, the last hope that we have as viewers that things are going to be okay, right? Like this is post Kane's birth sequence. So like we've all been traumatized by it, but maybe it's not going to go so bad. Like maybe they're going to figure this out and catch this thing. And you have this quiet moment where Brett's alone and he takes the hat off and he lets the, the water wash on him. And the hat is so beautifully framed in that moment. And then when it goes back on again, that to me, I think it almost becomes totemic for people as like the last glimpse of normalcy that they really have for the whole rest of the film. So I think that's part of why people hold on to it so much. But I, I guess to, as we, because we do have to kind of wrap, I, I'm curious, Adam, what because you're in the business now of creating these costume pieces and selling them, what are some things that you get requests from more than others? Or what are the things that sell really well? I think the number one is Brett's hat. I think mainly because it, it's so, you know, utilitarian. I mean, you can wear it all the time, everywhere. So it gets the most use out of, as opposed to, for example, like a, a Dallas or Kane jacket, which is are more for, you know, you can wear it, but it's not as easy to wear as a hat. I get a lot of requests for um, a Brett's jacket itself, which was custom made for the film. Many of the, you know, like the crew regular ivory uh, shirts, the pants for, for Brett's character, uh, and then all kinds of like little little bits and pieces, like like the belts that we we mentioned that I also started making re very recently. I, was, I visited my um, friend Steve Laboido, who is a master maker. He's the one who makes the the replicas of the spacesuits, like including the casting, the molding of the the of the the helmets and the the armor. So he kind of taught me a little bit about uh, because I most of my, my work is, you know, manipulating fabric. I never did casting and moldings of, of, of items. So he kind of gave me like an intro to that. So I started, you know, so I can add the, uh, the belts to, you know, the list of items I'm, I'm offering. The pins recently were added uh, because the original ones from the film were brass and brass, you know, patinas and tarnishes in a very specific way. They use brass also for for all the nameplates on the on the on the suits on the on like the cubbies over there where and the where Ripley hides, for example. Yeah, it's kind of a, a like um uh like all over the place. But then the 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 number one item is is definitely the hats. Yeah, it's worth throwing in just quick that again on Brett's custom jacket, he has a military insignia. It's something that John Mallow definitely kind of snuck in there. Adam, can you speak to that for a second? So those wings were we we figured it out. It well, it's it's a uh, World War II observer wings. So we know exactly like the type that they used because you can't see the whole thing because it has the pin on it. But we can figure it out from the photos that that are available. Yeah, it was interesting, and that's also something we didn't touch about that the whole you know the the set of of insignias and patches and and you know like the shoulder patches, the wings, the the, these pins, all of these systems that really John Molo came up with, Ron Cobb contributed the, the symbiotic standards for the ships, so like, you know, scheme for the, for the ship, but for the uniform, that, that this was all John Molo. Uh, really incredible work that he also borrowed from, from his knowledge about, you know, about, about military fashion and what would be a, a believable one. It's not too outlandish, but realistic. What would they wear in a, a hundred years? That was kind of what he was thinking about when he designed these these costumes. And you know, the fact of the matter is that even today, when you know people, you know, buy these costumes and and, and wear them, they look it looks great. It doesn't look dated. It doesn't look like you know time stamped. And I get photos from uh, from uh, you know from clients of mine at different events, different. Uh, different things, all kinds of weird stuff, even that I would not have never thought of before. Like apparently recently, these, these past few years, these types of baggy pants with big pockets is really popular. Uh, all kinds of interesting, strange, you know, strange uh, developments, I guess, in this world, this universe. In addition to all those things, we also never talked about the spacesuits, which is, seems like a big omission. Um, 
So maybe we'll come back to this in the future because we still have things to talk about. The series that never ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should. Uh, yeah, if you guys are up to it, for sure. Yeah, I'll ask Steve. I was going to say it'd be great to have him on also to talk about. That would be great. That, those suits yeah. are a whole episode, in my opinion. Yeah, he is so iconic. He, this is the person I go to whenever I have a, a a question or an issue or something I need clarification on. He's the real master. Absolutely, hands down. Let's do it. Thank you, everybody. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, we would love to hear what you guys think. What do you think of the things that we've discussed in this episode? What stands out for you with Alien and these characters and these costumes? Write us. Send us a, a voice message. We would love to hear that. And maybe we'll play that on an episode in the future. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, guys. And thanks for coming on the show again, Adder. Yeah. Adam. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a blast. I enjoy talking about these things. Maybe not as elo eloquent as I would like to, but uh, uh, I, I had a blast. Thank you. <laughs> You're plenty eloquent. And don't forget, NostromoCrew.com yes. is the website. Yep. Yes. yes. NostromoCrew.com and NostromoCrew on, on Instagram is uh, and, and Facebook are the, like, the main places I, you know, operate, I guess. Yeah. Thanks, awesome. guys. Friend. Thank you, everybody. Happy New Year. Thank you. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.